0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the blister podcast and a slightly late edition of reviewing the news with Cody Townsend. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And that includes our big new winter buyer's guide that is bigger than ever before, and we actually think this one is better than ever before as well. You can purchase the digital edition of the buyer's guide on our website, or you can purchase the print edition, which comes with the digital edition of the guide. So go ahead and pick your proverbial poison. If the poison was really smart writing about all of this expensive, ski and snowboard gear that we like to use to go have fun on snow and today while it is a couple days late we do have an excellent and very fresh from the oven edition of reviewing the news cody's travel schedule meant that we had to wait until tuesday to record this but you're getting this wednesday morning so you know life is good And in this conversation, we open by remembering the great and influential Rob Gaffney. From there, we talk about the growth in snow sports and get into the question of who is more passionate, alpine skiers, cross-country skiers, or snowboarders. Cody and I then talk about celebrating going fast and slow We discuss the sale of Silverton Mountain. Of course, we go into the most Canadian news. We talk about Cody's latest 50 film Split, which just dropped earlier this morning, and more. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Open Snow. And that fact is particularly fitting because guess what? It just snowed here in Crested Butte the butte got blanketed here yesterday and the whole valley is just absolutely beautiful right now and what's also fitting is that cody himself is a big fan and user of open snow just like us here at blister and so if you have yet to check out open snow well this is your one-stop weather app for all of your essential weather tools You can view 10-day weather forecasts for any location on Earth. You can read expert local analysis from their team of local forecasters. You can track active fires with perimeter, hotspot, and smoke forecast maps. You can avoid lightning with live and forecast radar, compare recent conditions and forecasts at your favorite locations, and much more. And one of the reasons that I am now checking open snow multiple times a day well it's because i'm trying to figure out how much more mountain biking i get to do here in crested butte versus figuring out how soon i've got to put the bike away and start really thinking about ski season and folks i am not gonna lie i am loving the bike right now and so while we talk a lot about winter and our enthusiasm for the upcoming ski season the riding is really good right now. I hope it is where you are. If this snow recedes a little bit, don't tell anybody. But I can't be mad about that because the riding's been real good. Anyway, that's just one of the reasons why I personally am checking Open Snow a lot these days and you can try Open Snow today by visiting opensnow.com/blister and you will then receive a free trial of Open Snow through January 31st, 2024 with no credit card required. So if you want to know why I use it and Cody uses it and Luke Kappa uses it, well, go to opensnow.com slash blister and you can absolutely find out for yourself. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Cody. And we do talk a bit about his film Split, and why he calls it one of his favorite episodes of the 50 ever. So we'll include a link to that film in the show notes of this episode, and he and I talk about the movie mostly at the end of this conversation. So check out the film, but for now, enjoy this conversation. Here we go.
1: Well, Cody, I see you're in the closet. I am. I got sequestered into the gear room. Usually I like to record these podcasts in my office slash guest room slash workout room. But my wife is requesting the three-use room to be a workout room right now. So I got to get somewhere quiet. So I'm in the office and on a chair with my um, computer and recorder on a milk crate. How are you doing? Great. I like that Elise was like, you
0: know what? I'm a professional athlete. Get out of my fitness room. I'm going to actually work out. You go talk about whatever it is you two talk about. And that's where we are at the moment. Totally do your silly little podcast. But we did get a report. Shout out to uh, the lovely person in Austria who sent me a nice photo of his adventure vehicle and said that, you know, that we have at least he's might be the hundredth or the 101st listener in Austria. And so we always appreciate, you know, the, the shout outs the the photos of where you like to listen to reviewing the news. And I think we might be up to 102. I think we might have 102 listeners
1: by I, Yeah. I mean, we've been doing this for a couple of years now. If we're, if we can get, uh, you know, just like a 0.001% growth per year, we're we're crushing it in the yes. podcast world. So um, if we That's can, great. you know, I'll need some evidence from you to report on this fact okay. um, that we are <laughs> actually over a hundred listeners. But um, if you can provide that, then I'll believe it. But it's been a couple of years and I still have yet to see a single metric from this podcast. So that... I don't think that's mm. true. I think I shared it once with you a while
0: ago, and you just—you're uh, just a flat earther. Or something.
1: <laughs> I pretty much uh, warp reality to fit within my own definition. So you—you you are correct in that sort of way. Hey, by the way, I want to ask a favor here. Kind of a favor,
0: kind of a. This might be the worst thing I ever ask. We did a thing a while ago. We started these uh, blister crash course videos where. You know, we were seeing, especially on Gear 30, you know, our very popular podcast that you do not appear on very often. Weirdly, those numbers are much higher than 102 listeners. Um, But we had a thing where it was like if we hit certain um, numbers of reviews on Gear 30, we would go make a film of doing things I've never done before. So, like, we made a Snowblade film. Last year, we did a telemark film. I really want to get on a snowboard this year, but I refuse to do that until we hit the metrics on our Gear 30 podcast (laughs) listens. And recently, someone left a review on the Blister podcast saying, I really like the show, but the biggest downside is I'm not sure this gets us any closer to Ellsworth and Company going snowboarding. In fact, that savvy reviewer was correct. So what we need here is 750 ratings of Gear 30. And if that happens, I go snowboarding and then probably get hurt, but I, I'm ready. It's time, I've made my piece. So I don't really know what your role here is other than, I don't know. Tell people to go leave ratings if they like Year 30. We don't, want to, we don't want anybody rating who hasn't listened to it or doesn't like it. But I don't know. That was my half-baked favor. Do you want to make something out of
1: that or help me here? Your sum up is, if you get enough reviews, we get to watch Jonathan break his wrists. Both at the exact same time, as he catches his toe side edge and face plants on an icy groomer and breaks both of his wrists at the same time. I'm fully in. We should definitely, if uh, if you're a listener of this podcast, go in and review Gear Thirty. So it's a pretty good podcast too. And the reason I'm not on there is because you know you got the patron, the patron saint of Gear Thirty is Hoji, and like pretty much what OG. I do, nice. my whole entire career of gear knowledge and gear tinkering is just pretty much mimicking what hoji does so if when i come in there it's just like you know it's like secondhand information that i've learned from hoji that i just regurgitate so there's no need for me to be on there
0: (laughs) well i was thinking today we started doing some gear 30 episodes that we called the Mm Pros gear and like i had bodie miller on for an episode of that chris davenport uh, mckenna peterson uh, hadley hammer And I was like, man, we got to get back to doing some of these pros gear episodes. So when you were on gear 30, we, as I recall, we mostly talked about coffee makers, that's right. But, but maybe at some point I have you back on gear 30 for a proper pros gear episode. And we can, even though you're not Hoji, you know, and we'll never be Hoji, I still think we could, you know, pull something off to that
1: end. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting because I think a lot of people will look at pro skiers and they're like, well, they're just going to say exactly what they're sponsored by. And yes, we do sign contracts with companies that we end up using their gear for, but like A lot of decisions within that company and even the companies you work for like you have a lot of freedom within there and there is very specific reasons why we use certain gear on certain days and certain philosophies of gear and whatnot and so i actually think that idea is a good one um even though people might think it's just purely branded content it's it's not um what i always say too to people is like if you look between the lines of what we don't promote That's how you know whether we like gear or not, because I don't know any pro skiers that actively market gear and talk about gear that they don't use or don't like. Like, even like if it's like kind of a i don't know about this ski you if if it's even at that level people aren't talking about it actively and like trying to market it and promote it it's like genuine like you know i really like the ski for x y and z um and i've always said that as just like look what i don't promote if you want to know my true opinion of things because what i do promote stuff it's like because i love it like i really enjoy this ski for that sort of usage and um you know i'm I feel lucky that I get to test a lot of competitors' gear. Um, Solon has made that as part of our kind of gear development, and a lot of other companies do too. Um, you know we test like ten different competitors' boots and skis, and so you get to learn what's really out there and um, when you're helping develop gear, those kind of that test can help you inform your decisions of what you like and what you don't like.
0: I think to add to that too is one of the things I think people find interesting about those conversations. I mean, the one I did with Bodie Miller on Gear 30 is freaking fascinating. Yeah. That that was one where it was like, I am definitely not tracking you in terms of how he is describing what he is looking for and the sensations he's looking for out of a ski boot. But I think those things are really interesting to hear where the sort of quirks or the really the, the quirky particulars of a given athlete when it comes to a binding, a ski boot, a ski, et cetera. And I think those kinds of things can actually help, you know, the rest of us think through like, right, what, what do I care about? What don't I care about? What are maybe some things I haven't even noticed or looked for before? So I, I was literally today thinking I should get those conversations firing again on gear 30. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah. 750 reviews of Gear 30, I Go Break My Wrists. Sounds great. Do it. Like, everybody wins except me, it seems like. Perfect. Shall we review the news? Let's review some news. And off the top, we needed to talk about an unfortunate thing and a big loss for the community. We lost Rob Gaffney recently, and that's a huge blow for anyone who knows anything about modern skiing and modern ski films and modern ski culture, I think. And I have held off on asking you about this because I knew we had this conversation coming up, but I wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on Rob.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it's definitely a bit crushing for the local community and everyone probably at least knows about his brother, Scott Gaffney, who lived just down the street from, him. um, his two kids, his wife, um, and the, just the rest of his family. It's, um, you know, it's been a four year battle with cancer. Um, so when you're dealing with a disease like that, I think there's a lot more mental preparation for these things, but it doesn't make it any less easy. Um, I will say, you know, talking to Scott um, quite a lot towards the end, the one thing that I could say is a blessing, especially in our industry, is being able to be surrounded by your family like he was at the last moments. Um, You know, it became pretty, it was about two weeks ago that it became pretty apparent that, um, you know, the cancer had reached a place where it wasn't going to turn around. So he was able to return from the hospital to his home and be surrounded by his friends and family until the very end and i think about how um how kind of amazing of a blessing that is like i know if when I die, that would be the way that I would want to go. Um, as you know, I think that's the things that are most important to you being there for the end. Um, I, so of any positive thing, I think that was kind of, um, one thing I'd like to look at and I've kind of learned from it of just seeing like his, him and being around his family and facing it. Uh, other than that, yeah, it still sucks beyond belief because he was so young. He had a young family. Um, and he was, you know, I actually almost to present this to you because he sort of was this to me, but like, was he one of the most underground influential skiers in free skiing history Um, because of, you know, the, the book Squallywood, um, the, the game of NAR, which was literally named Gaffney's numerical assessment of radness was an anagram. And him, um, um, him and McConkie came up with that game. And obviously that, that game and the subsequent media that came out of it had just like a profound impact on the culture of skiing and continues to this day so um and then beyond that like personally I looked up to him when I was young because there was a segment in 1999 a ski movie made by his brother and it was this ripping segment from Berthoud Pass which is not typically a place known for ski filmmaking, but Scott went out there and filmed them hiking up Berthoud Pass and skiing all these technical, like, multi-stage cliff lines and big drops and just, like, ripping Berthoud Pass while he was studying to get his doctorate. And when I watched that film, it was in 1999, I was 16 years old, and I just remember thinking, it was like... He was the first skier I'd ever seen in a ski movie that was ripping, doing incredible things, but then getting his doctorate, which was the first time I thought I was like, okay, so I probably can go to college and try to be a pro skier. Um, And that positive influence, we don't see that often in skiing to be a highly educated individual and be a professional skier. Not that he would call himself ever a professional, but in my mind, growing up watching him, he was Obviously had the skills to do it, and he was being in ski movies. So I was like, "That guy's a pro skier." So he had a pretty profound impact on me, just in that sort of way of being like, "Well, I I can get a college education and try to be a pro skier." Rob Rob's doing it. Rob's getting his doctorate. That's way harder. So um he and then beyond that, um, obviously, just his uh, local work with the community, uh, his local work on. You know, preservation and whatnot has kind of changed a lot of it. He was, I would say, the visual and uh, spiritual leader of a lot of the preservation movements around here. And so um, that impact will be felt around here for a very long time. So, uh, yeah, Rob, to me, I don't know, from my perspective, I was kind of thinking, I was like, probably the most underground influential skier in, in free skiing history. Completely concur. So to Scott Gaffney
0: and the rest of the Gaffneys and the extended community, our thoughts go to everyone. And I'm looking forward to some of the things that we have up our sleeve to raise the metaphorical glass to Rob.
1: And actually, I'll do one little, there's a quick little story and it kind of, I, it's a story that I thought of recently that I kind of almost forgot about and realized how big of an impact it had on me. Um, you know, when I've talked about like the 50 and ski touring and for so long, I absolutely hated it. I thought it was really, really stupid. And as I started to get into it, um, one of my first goals was like, I want to go do Mount Shasta. Everyone talks about how amazing it is. And so I went up with Rob Gaffney, um, went up there with him and another buddy, Kyle O'Neill. And God, I don't even know what year it is. It had to be 2008, 2009. Um, And we went out to the north side of Shasta and we hiked forever. And I just remember one, it felt like I was like, this is just pure pain and suffering going up 8,000 vertical feet because we were coming from the north side. And Rob is just like, I, rob was so fast ski touring he was so far ahead of me me and kyle and um, and i just remember like this sucks but i was like we're gonna get to the top i gotta get to the top of shasta and we got to this one section and it was quite windy um we all only had one ice axe and crampons and we got to a section where the wind was so strong it felt like it was almost going to blow us over and it was quite icy like exposed blue ice and i remember getting there and we're maybe 300 feet short of the summit. So right there, we've been putting in so much effort and Rob's kind of looking at it and being like, he's like, we could get it through, but, you know, he's talking me through this decision-making process of going like uh, this very like very rational risk analysis of being like calculating the odds of what could go wrong uh, what are the actual factors if something goes wrong what are our rescue operations and he's just kind of like very rationally going through everything and talking to me through the whole plan he's like yeah it's just not worth it let's uh turn around it'll be some great skiing from here and i was like oh okay i did not have, had even thought of that you know you're young you're Going to, trying to get to the summit of Shasta. It didn't even seem like like we would turn around. And we skied down and I remember it being an incredibly fun run all the way down. And I think that's had some kind of like deep impact on me because it was like my first big backcountry objective, my first time trying to reach the summit of a big mountain. And and we turned around short of it. And I I like look back at that really fondly, being like, ah, he kind of imparted something on me that i didn't know would have that big of an impact but i think it has and so it's been cool to kind of remember that story in particular and kind of again this influence that rob rob had throughout the industry because he was a good person he was a smart person and uh he he did things right rob you will be
0: missed so on a happier note at least i i view this as a as a positive. We want to talk about a report that came out from SIA, Snow Sports Industry of America, that said skier visits are up. And while we have to be a little bit careful about this, it looks like this past winter, we may have seen the greatest number of snow sports participants ever in the United States. I don't know why, but I was very surprised by that report. Um, And to just share a little bit more of that, basically nearly 30 million people participated in snow sports, um, and that largely goes into basically either skiing or snowboarding. It does not count Nordic skiing. So actually, I mean, we know many people are out there Nordic skiing, so this isn't even counting those folks. But another interesting thing from this report is another way of looking at this is that nearly 10% of the U.S. population aged six years or older participated in snow sports this past winter.
1: Thoughts? That that number is crazy. I mean, to think that percentage of people would actually go skiing is like mind-boggling i mean obviously we talk about it with crowds and what we see in skiing quite often and we all feel like it's getting busier it's getting more crowded so there's these numbers while there are caveats within this snow the sia report of saying like uh, we're measuring it a little bit differently it does kind of like The numbers match up with what we're feeling in reality that it is getting busier um and i'll say the other thing to this is that this isn't just for skiing too outdoor sports in general are just growing so fast we're seeing this massive mainstream mainstreaming of outdoor sports like uh, i was just talking to this one guy who He's lived in Mexico and has traveled throughout Central America. Uh, he's a surfer. And he was telling me about pretty much all these waves he's discovered within the last 20 years. And then surfing this one break um, that there was 40 people out at uh, only 10 years ago with like three people out. And now there's 40 people. And we're just seeing like explosive growth in all sports, surfing, skiing, any sort of mountain biking ultra running like there's just outdoor sports are growing so so fast so the SIA report what i what i do like about it is showing that like snow sports are part are a part of that which is a good thing um that it's growing so fast but like again the numbers for it is just kind of a kind of Boggling. um the one thing i would say the number that i liked the most out of here was the growth across across demographic groups and that there was a 35.9 percent increase in people under the age of 25 skiing and snowboarding like that's good that's huge like if we were seeing bigger growths and more middle-aged to elderly, like, uh-oh, that to me is a warning sign. But seeing so many young people and the sport growing on the young side, that's awesome. This is, a, this is a lengthy report. It's very well
0: done. If you'd like to see the report, you can become an SIA member and download it. But I want to read this section because the, the numbers, there's a couple of different numbers here, as is often the case when you start getting into statistics. Winter sports participants are getting younger. While all age groups saw increases in the number of participants, younger age groups saw especially strong growth. This in turn creates proportionally higher participation among the young. In the 21-22 season, 37.3 of per- 37.3% of participants were under 25 years old. In 22-23, that proportion grew to 41.5%. So it's funny because, Cody, I suspect you have heard the same thing I have heard. And this is basically anecdotal anecdotal evidence or anecdotes is that the snow sports world is getting older, right? And that we aren't seeing the younger folks sort of come up and enter these sports. And I feel like I hear that enough that it's almost... I almost hesitate to believe that these numbers are true in the SIA report only because I have so frequently heard the opposite of this. Are you,
1: are you, is it kind of the same for you? I mean, it's really hard because obviously it's hard to notice the younger it's hard to notice other people up when you're at the ski resort and try and come up with some like big demographical analysis of what's going on at the ski area when there's 10,000 people there. But I would say like looking at the growth of like big mountain free ski teams and the explosive growth of the contests in big mountain, um, big mountain competitions. um, That to me was always been a sign like, well, like these things are uh, exploding. There must be something going on. Because it's not like the race teams are dying and the mogul teams. Well, moguls are definitely shrinking quite a lot. Um, But the race teams at Palisades kind of have the similar numbers that I had when I was growing up. Um, But the, you know, there's six to 800 kids on the big mountain team, which is absolutely bananas. So so when you kind of start to think of it in different ways, they're like, no, I, I can actually see it getting younger. Um, the one thing I will say, too, is that I think I've lobbied this criticism before, and I might have been completely wrong on it. And I think we've brought it up when it comes to ski areas and ski area pricing and, and, and incentivizing bringing younger people to the ski resort investing in the future of it while i think there's still potentially problems there um this number is showing that like no we're actually growing on the younger side the cause of that i don't know um I guess you'd be just kind of throwing spaghetti at a wall trying to figure out a reason as to why the sport is getting younger um but obviously there's something going on whether it's pricing whether it's marketing whether it's just general growth of outdoor sports um whether it's family participation in sports we're seeing the sport get younger which is awesome and that criticism that I've kind of put into ski areas for maybe not incentivizing younger people to get there could have been completely wrong. So um, I, I will take the loss on that if this is the actual result that we are getting younger.
0: Well, you know, I always like it when you are wrong. And in part because it kind of means I was sort of right on this one, because if you listen back to our conversations, I think I was more on the side of I think this is a positive thing for the sport. I also think it's probably this podcast. <laughs> probably is the reason why like those 102 listeners getting out there and telling their friends and bringing them to the ski hill. I think that is probably the number one reason that we're seeing. So, so much snow sports participation. So two great things here. One, you were wrong and I appreciate you acknowledging, uh, acknowledging that.
1: And then two, look at us, the power of uh, the power of reviewing the news. The power of the hundred. Um, uh, there's a couple other numbers I want to discuss. I don't know yeah. if, how much more time you want to spend no, on this. No, it's great. We should totally. yeah, to do it. But um, it's kind of increases across the, level, uh, across the way. It's, um, diversity increases. Great sign. Um, right, so, again, whatever is happening that is increasing diversity within the sport Um whether that is marketing, whether that is more DEI initiatives on a ski, a ski industry level uh, or the, the manufacturer level, whatever it is, it, we're increasing that. Or it just goes along with the general trends, and generally then that's a good thing. Um, but the one thing that is wild, and I put this out on social media recently, I saw a chart of the fastest growing sports in America. And number one was pickleball, which makes sense. We see and hear about pickleball everywhere. The number two fastest growing sport in America was alpine ski touring, which I didn't even know they would have in that list. But I look at this SIA and I didn't I kind of questioned the veracity of the report. It came from a trade industry association, not the SIA, um, but an outside like in more of a kind of general sport trade association but looking at these numbers in the covid years and pre-covid years they're talking about 1 million to 1.1 million ski tours and now that number is over 2.5 so absolutely explosive growth in the backcountry scene um so the number of you know alpine ski touring being the second fastest growing sport in north america um I think that was actually reliable because the SIA data has shown the exact same thing, which is crazy. Um, And I'll say one last thing on the touring, too. A lot of people, when I put it out there, were like, oh, no, like everyone's going to die. Avalanches, this is a bad thing. There's going to be more uh, like aviary deaths. And we've discussed it on this podcast. Everything is showing that that's not happening. Avalanche deaths have been flat for almost a decade. And when we're seeing this explosive growth and we're not having increases of deaths, that means actually the ratio is going down. We're having less accidents and fatalities per person that is out there. So whether that's education, whether that's gear, whether that's just the, the, the culture of the sport um, emphasizing safety, um, we're not necessarily seeing that. Of course, we can have an anomaly year like two years ago in Colorado was insane and it was a really bad year for, for avalanche deaths. And I think we talked about it and showed the data that was it was really related to the snowpack, not necessarily the numbers, because as soon as the snowpack healed, we saw a drastic dro- uh, drop off in, um, in avalanche fatality. So um, whatever's going on in that regard, the sport is growing and it's getting safer. So that's a good thing as well. I want to point
0: out another thing. Maybe we'll just keep doing this. We'll keep claiming we're going to be done talking and then we'll just you can you can then find the next thing to still talk about. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about average days. Turns out snowboarders love snowboarding more than skiers love skiing. Because according to the SIA report, the average number of days for every snowboarding participant was 8.4 days. The average number of days for alpine skiers, free skiers, and telemarkers: seven days. For alpine touring, which you just spoke to, average number of days was five point one. But splitboarders six point three. This is why I'm converting to snowboarding because I want to be where the passion is. And skiers, I don't know what's happening to you, but um, you ain't it anymore. So. I, on behalf of my fellow snowboarders, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just happy that, uh, you know, how
1: stoked you all are out there on the mountain and skiers, step your game up. Well, this is, again, my favorite part of the podcast when you were wrong, because you picked the wrong sport if you're going to go for passion, because the biggest number per day is cross-country skiers at 8.7 days per year so um you know, you're gonna have to drop some weight and get some skinny skis buddy you're going cross-country skiing <laughs> no that's no that's, that's where the too passion much lies man it's too just... much
0: work those people well no that's where they're just they're people <laughs> with like deep-rooted problems they just like to suffer and, and cut out all the fun part. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a few emails about this one. But <clears throat> um, no, that's way too hard and way too much suffering. You know, like, again, going uphill, that is the suffering. That is the discipline. And whether you're on a mountain bike or you're running up a trail or you're skinning up a trail, you can do that with the thought of, then I get to go downhill. And those cross-country psychos... They're just like we don't need the joy. You can have the joy all you other folks and we're just going to be out here suffering endlessly and doing it more than all you people skiers and snowboarders who get who get the you know get the pellet. It's like the rats like we, they get the pellet at the end of the experiment. There's no pellet for the for the cross country skiers. They don't need it. And I'm not I can't I'm not there yet. I'm not a serial killer.
1: I was a two years ago. We had a really bad winter here and I started cross country skiing because um, there's a resort that's actually behind my house and never done it before. It is like both exactly what you said, like you are like tasting blood and metal in your mouth. You're breathing so hard from it. It is like one of the most difficult sports I have ever done in my entire life. But there is something sneakily addictive about it. And I it's got that like you know like that efficiency that road biking brings where you just you kind of going at a speed that doesn't feel natural and you're pushing and you're like wow i am going so fast and so far so quickly it just there's something weird about that how that it becomes addicting but it really is and uh when you're like i was skate skiing which is again technically really hard to learn too like god i mean what a difficult sport you suffer and it's really technically really difficult to do um but it's kind of fun i mean i didn't do it one day last year so i'm not saying i'm going out there and being converted to a cross-country skier like i've i've relegated the sport to if the skiing is absolutely terrible and i can't even go ski touring the snow is oh so bad that's when i'll go cross-country skiing but like uh but yeah i i think i think it's pretty fun and in, in, in a weirdly sneaky way i don't know anyway we'll get you know we'll devote a
0: whole other uh podcast to the the like murderous psychology of cross country skiers. Cross country skiers are like the cats of the animal world, right? They're they they look nice and they seem like nice people, but they're just freaking murderers. The average house cat could murder you; it would, right? That's that's my new philosophy. I'm working this out, but this is might be my philosophy
1: on cross country skiers. Mm-hmm. I'm you know the people if there's one group of people in the world i'm most terrified of it's biathletes. i mean can you imagine getting in Ooh. some sort of like yes. disagreement with a biathlete? they will run you down <laughs> and shoot you from afar no. and like you like i just could think of yeah. like i don't know it was like the those uh, what was that movie that, where they like go hunt humans, and I think about a biathlete, and you, if you had to go run into the woods, like you're dead. You're dead very quickly.
0: And they are, they are getting out of there so fast, and they're just back home in front of the fireplace. Not even breathing and... hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Resting heart rate. And when the cops come, they're like, what yeah, are totally. you talking about? I just was home all evening, and uh, you're right. I'm not, I'm not making any jokes about Terrified biathletes because I'm not, I'm not that stupid. Uh, we love the
1: biathletes. Please don't shoot me. Okay. Well, um, there is more stuff, but we should move on. What, is, what do you got up next? Well, we just talked a lot about snow sports.
0: So let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about this next article that I'm calling this category climbing and numbers. So you brought this one to our attention. What do you got?
1: Yeah, it was a opinion piece um, from UK Climbing. And it kind of, it's the the title is uh, Climbing Has Succumbed to Numbers. And it's by John Porter. Um, and it was a really well done piece. And I think it kind of touches on some of the, the, the topics we've talked about in the past on this podcast, um, and really kind of connected with me philosophically as well. Um, so I wanted to just, uh, like the overall impact, it really talked about the eight thousand meter peaks, so all the biggest peaks in the world. Um, and we've talked about, you know, obviously there's fourteen peaks from NIMs. There was the Kristen Harla and Tenjin Sherpas race to climb all of them. and talks about this movement within specifically mountaineering of being numbers obsessed like it becomes the record the the exact height the speed in which you did it and and how that's almost negative for the sport and it's how it's showing it's like taking these it's they they compare it of you know we talked about on here and it wasn't exactly the the correlation between the, the Kristen Harla and Tenjin Sherpas climb on K2 and the dying porter and saying like these obsession with numbers starts to disregard safety, starts to disregard care for other human life, starts to disregard the mountain environments themselves and takes away from what he believes is one of the true reasons why why climbing exists. And um, so I found it pretty interesting, mainly because, as you said in the beginning of this podcast, it kind of aligns with my philosophies of of being in the mountains. Um, And it's one thing, like, if I were to have any impact on the culture of ski mountaineering from the 50, it would be that I want to make sure that this project is not about the number, the 50, and it never has and never will be. Um, my big pushback within ski mountaineering before I got to it was it seemed very serious it seemed very numbers obsessed it was all about the exact vert you did that exact peak you did um there's no grading system in ski bound nearing but we've talked about it before people trying to start that in this movement of like move more towards numbers nor towards numbers and you know we're seeing it now like i talked positively about fkts in a previous podcast but my one thing i kind of didn't say which you're gonna bring up here is the diminishing of these mountains into just numbers, a time, and the obsession that it becomes. And, you know, the mountains are there for everyone. You can do what you want on the mountains as long as you are not taking away from other people's enjoyment, the preservation of that place, the conservation of that place, you should be able to express yourself within these sports. But one of the, the the negative things of these numbers is exactly what is brought up in this article is you start to disregard a lot of the other meanings. And you can also have impacts on the way the the, the culture of that sport by by this obsession. So um I thought it was interesting and it's again aligns with my philosophy is like I try to push back on numbers as much as possible, even though I have a project that is literally named a number. What do you think of it? Yeah, I mean I'm
0: I feel like in the scheme of things I'm I'm probably <laughs> more I'm kind of want to say anti number than even you wow. on this, and which is I,
1: ironic. Because, I thought you would be more middle of the road, actually. So, yeah, I, I want to hear what you have to say.
0: Well, just, I'm honestly, this is just, now we're just really into subjective personal territory here. Mm-hmm. And while ironic, right, because at Blister, what we do is, like, we sit there and we put calipers on every single ski that we review, right? We, we get our own measured weights. Like, we, in that way, when it comes to the gear we are trying to be extremely accurate with our product reviews and what these pieces of gear are but i still operate largely that like when i get to close the laptop and i it, that is for me the escape when i'm finally outside i am trying to i'm i'm not i'm not on strava i'm not on sort of any of these things where i'm still trying to get numbers and metrics. And and I'm not saying that everybody should be on that program at all. I'm not, I'm not saying like, look, you know, look at me and be the same way. But that's just how I kind of operate. And I'm also not into speed. That's just not my, so like, it is always kind of a bit of a, <laughs> feels like a bit of a victory when I am outside. And normally when I'm outside, it's with friends and good people. And so to be able to be in these beautiful places or sometimes gnarly places and do that with good people, that is really what it is about for me. And I I get it and I applaud and I admire people are like, yeah, but like, I want to see if I'm more fit than I was last year Mm -hmm. or it's fun to, you know, somebody else gets off on that competition among a local community or national or international community with times. I don't have a problem with that. No. But when we bring up these articles, and it does become about beating a time, I just, it's so not where I'm, it's so not what I've ever, it's never been my relationship to the mountains. Um, and maybe that's a privileged place, or I don't know, but it's my place. And um, so, I don't know, I, I struggle with that stuff.
1: And it's like, I'm in the same way, like, you know, being in the mountains to me has a lot of different forms, whether that's like what you just talked about, kind of escapism, which I think a lot of people go into the wild and go into the mountains for that escape from the daily grind from the, you know, the the shitty feelings that your day presents to you and you get out there and it just feels pure, it feels natural, you're moving. And it's just like that escapism is something that we kind of, a lot of us do do it for. There's natural connection to a place, the the, the feelings that you get of a place by just being out there, the, the friends, the stories that you come home with, uh, the camaraderie you get, you know, there's a lot of, those are really healthy things, I think, for both yourself and for the community. And what this this article kind of presents and what I kind of align with, too, is that like when you start to just make a culture of these sports that is based upon numbers, I think it starts to take away from that again, like I do. I said it before, I I like FKTs. I think they're kind of fun and funny, but I also a lot of them like it's only if I've been on that mountain before or understand that mountain that I look at a time like someone ran up and down the Grand in three hours. I'm like, holy shit, that's crazy. That's really cool. But to someone else that's never been to the Grand, it means absolutely nothing to them. Um, So it's like these it's, it's a really kind of niche, narrow sport. But I also see it get a lot of popularity, like every headline, someone does an FKT somewhere, it makes a headline, it makes a headline. And that culture, I think, starts to shape a sport. And I don't want FKTs to be the dominant feature of a sport i think it's a great niche within i think it's for a subset of people that really like to suffer like to push themselves like to have that competition i think it's awesome but i also would like i definitely push back on these this numbers obsession because i do think it can take away from the the healthy aspects of sport the healthy aspects of a culture that i think these outdoor sports can provide for most people um like you said it's like it's not as relatable so um, yeah. I I don't know. It's, it's been my kind of philosophy that like, don't be obsessed with numbers because it takes away from the enjoyment of the day.
0: Yeah. And I mean, or don't get too obsessed with like, must check this thing off the list type of thing. I think maybe one of the things we could phrase it and maybe, maybe we've actually talked about this on a prior conversation, but it's like, we need, we, we need and, can and should celebrate fastest known time records when they're done sort of appropriately. Mm -hmm. We maybe need to also celebrate slowest known times. Hell yeah. And I I actually kind of mean that. Like Mm -hmm. my guy who I talk about nonstop, Thoreau, in his essay, Walking, right? This is about actually a celebration, you could say, of going slow. It's actually one of the things that I much prefer about walking to mountain biking, mm-hmm. or, or trail running for that matter. When, yeah. I'm, when I'm actually trail running and when I'm actually, I mean for me mountain biking around Crested Butte, it means I'm typically riding it, kind of the ride starts at 9,000 feet and we're going up from there. I'm not soaking in all the natural beauty. You, you catch those moments and you're like, God, this is incredible. But there is a difference when you are actually walking or hiking and your heart rate is much lower and you really can soak in and appreciate um, your surroundings, at least for me, it works this way, in a deeper way. And you also, I can operate with more sort of freedom of thought than I can if I'm like, dear Lord, okay, here comes the steep, punchy part of this climb. And I really value those moments. And, um, you know, sometimes it's fun to get out there and it's like sun's going down. I'm finally free and out in the mountains. And I do kind of need to, at my level, kind of crush it up this hill and kind of racing daylight. I, I like all of it, but I think I can sum up by saying there are moments where it is worth to use a very Therovian word, sauntering. And there's another time where it's like, all right, let's, let's kind of push it and see what we can do. And if we're keeping both of those ends of the spectrum in mind and celebrating both, I'm I'm good with this.
1: Yeah, I like. Is the, that a bit of a philosophy? I do. I like the celebration of the slow because I I was having this conversation this weekend about mountain biking versus trail running and how I'm very addicted trail running right now and I was explaining it to a very very good mountain biker who's really good at it, really gnarly, goes super fast, and I was saying that exact thing of like. I don't know. I've never felt the feeling like I do when I'm trail running when you're like an hour and a half in and all of a sudden it feels like you're floating through this forest and you're like, you see every little detail in this place. You feel like you're moving through the land as opposed to mountain biking is like i'm riding a trail with berms and i'm focused on this turn and making sure i don't eat shit which is pretty much every single turn i'd make on a mountain bike i'm like don't eat shit, don't <laughs> eat shit, don't eat shit, but oh, just careful don't eat shit. um so like you you don't have that freedom of of mind space when you're on a mountain bike that you do when you are when you are um trail running and the same goes for moving slow through the mountains um the episode that will come out as we record this tomorrow so it will be out tomorrow i think it's been a it's a big celebration of going slow it's a project that's been four years of trying in the making and i really i think it's one of my favorite episodes because of that because it's like i got to know this mountain and this place very very well over the course of four years and i now have pretty unique connection to that place um so yeah let's celebrate the slow I like it. All right, where you want to go next? Uh last thing, uh Blevins corner, uh good article. Um I wanted to talk about I know I saw the headlines of uh Silverton Mountain got uh got sold. Um do you see that?
0: I did see that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what I mainly wanted to talk about, um, it sounds like the sale probably isn't going to change much in the day-to-day operations. There's no necessarily big plans or like, hey, we're going to develop this. It's just like Aaron and Jenny Brill, the founders of it, um, started it. They're moving more into their skiing operation and guiding service. So they just kind of like, all right, we'll transfer it over to some other people. But I wanted to talk about Silverton in general because I don't think we recognize just how wild it is that that place exists. Like the, it is, how many new ski resorts do you know of that have been made and started in the last 20 years in North America? I don't know. I don't know. I literally, I could zero, like, I know there's a lot of (laughs) talk about new ski resorts, but I never see ground broken on them. I never, like maybe some hill in the midwest or in the east got restarted or but like especially out west like i haven't heard of a new ski resort out west being built in 20 years at least um and so the fact that a new ski resort started within the last 20 years is just absolutely phenomenal the second part of it is started in the way it's it is that it is not there's no lodge there. It's a tent at the bottom. It is one ski resort. There is no grooming. They do skier compaction. And then it's pretty much just like ski down these abbey chutes and like traverse back to the chairlift. Like it's fucking crazy that Silverton exists. And the the in this article there's one quote that uh Blevins put in there that I thought was just absolutely mind-blowing because when Silverton started, it is in a place that is the most avalanched mountains in the world. Like it is this Southwest Colorado is renowned for being the most unstable snowpack in the world. And they started a ski area in the most unstable snowpack in the world and made it like kind of more of a backcountry focused one. And everyone beginning was like, well, people are definitely going to die. They have not had one single snow safety fatality In the history of Silverton, which is unbelievable. So, um, you know, I want to say, like, I, I know some stuff about the Brills, know Aaron decently well, met him a few times, heard a lot of stories, but, like, do you think, like, I know what it took to get this ski resort off the, off the ground. And Aaron has a bit of a reputation of throwing his weight around. He's a lawyer. Um, he's able to do a lot of things in the court of law. Some people didn't like it. It obviously some things it was very good for, but like it took like the most dogged mentality to get this ski resort off the ground. It took a lawyer who just, wouldn't take no for an answer to get off the ground. Do you think there's any hope of new ski areas being built considering what Aaron went through? Do you mean in the fashion of Silverton or just in general? Just in general. Huh? Cause that's what it made me think about was like, well, yeah, Silverton was built and it's as un... I, it, it feels like a ski resort that just seems as improbable as any ski resort to be built in north america it wasn't made to have a bunch you know sell real estate it wasn't made to have a big lodge it wasn't made to sell seasonal tickets it was made with like an underground ski bum spirit and it took a lot of money a lot of time and a lot of fortitude and you really have to like cheers aaron and jenny for making it happen but like to me all of a sudden I both look at this and go like, wow, that was an achievement. And two, like, I don't, I honestly, if you had to put the over or under on how many ski resorts will be built in North America, in the U S in the next 20 years, I would put it at one. Like, would you say over or under one will be built in the next 20 years?
0: I really like this question a lot. And I'm, I don't like it because I'm sure I know the answer. This is the kind. This is a time when I like to do things with my friends. I'm like, all right, you have to bet ten thousand dollars, over on the over under here. The number that I want to believe in is five. Whoa! I would take the under (laughs) because 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 one of the things that we have done is talked about what I still really hold out hope for, and that is more kind of community ski areas, rural ski areas that are absolutely not these, you know, kind of mega ski areas or, you know, with the super sickest, gnarliest terrain. But what we've talked about this, that, you know, they're kind of, um, they are community local ski hills. And I would love to think that we could see more of those areas come to be in the next 20 years. And frankly, those ski areas, I suggest they look at places like Silverton, not that many places out there are going to have the kind of terrain that Silverton has, but in terms of the low infrastructure demands that a Silverton has, that the club fields of New Zealand, a a place I will always celebrate, the club fields of New Zealand did something similar to what the Brills pulled off in, you know, they did it first, right? Um, low, low infrastructure, low cost ways to develop ski areas, you know? And I, I want to believe that more places in this country or in North America could establish ski hills like that. That said, I don't think I'm going to wager 10 grand that we'll see five or more in the next 20 years, but
1: I want to hold out hope. Yeah, I would put at least ten thousand dollars on the under for five. Like, I, I just like I look at the article and what uh, Blevins was talking about. Like, um, his hopes, Aaron Brill's hopes for a speedy review by the Bureau of Land Management faded quickly as a land management agency took more than five years of intensive study for his plan to access some thirteen hundred acres of public land surrounding his land. So, like, I mean. Like that alone, to be sitting there on this development, this plan, you've already put in a ton of work, ton of money into it, and then you have to wait five years for a governmental review. And then after that, um, he... You know, Aaron hired high-profile lawyers and beat back lawsuits by angry neighbors, including a legal battle with an Aspen man who had spent 20 years tinkering with a plan to build a $20 million resort with a gondola and mountaintop restaurant. So then the least lawsuits that came from this, I just, God, like, there's so many challenges to building anything in this country. And we've talked about it before and read those takes on more of a national level when it comes to infrastructure. But to build even a mom-and-pop ski resort like Silverton was such an insane challenge for someone as dogged as Aaron. And I I just look at it and be like, yeah, the hopes for new ski areas, I think is like in the article, too. They say this was the first new ski area in Colorado since the 1980s when Beaver Creek opened up. So like the gap between there, just absolutely massive. So I would put the over under at one in North America and I like I might take the under. Well, things do change. They do. If
0: we are fortunate enough to continue to see growth in snow sports, in the way that if you look at what's happened with just the outdoor industry, right? The outdoor industry continues to grow and to become a bigger economic driver and bigger economic force. Like, we can say things now that the... Outdoor industry in total is larger than I want to be very careful here, but let's say the energy sector, right? At least in the United States, things like this, things can move and shift. And, you know, if we're seeing the kind of economic opportunities, um, if we're seeing the kind of programming put in place, and again, I'm still thinking about like Rota Run in Haley, Idaho. I'm thinking about our little local ski hill in Gunnison, Colorado. That's what I am holding out hope for. Not, not, not even ski areas on the scale of a Silverton, which is magnificent terrain done with very minimal infrastructure, right? So that's what I still want to hold
1: out the hope over the next 20 years. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I hold out hope. I just, I I think bringing up this article and seeing Silverton's history made me almost more pessimistic. So, but, uh, but yeah, cheers to Aaron and Jenny for making Silverton actually happen and passing, passing the torch. Um, it is kind of, that place is an inspiration for what exactly what you're talking about. And hopefully there's people out there that look at Silverton the same way and be like, you know what, I'm going to, put up a rope tow, uh skier uh uh, one chair lift something in my small community backyard and make the community involved with it so there is you know there's space for the more skiers that are out there i think it's time for some canadian news this is not that was a positive conversation
0: but i feel like it's been intense and so this is when i need my canadian palate cleanser
1: uh What do you have for us this month? So uh, this story uh, called Karma a la Mode, Canadian author gets the last tasty left in parking altercation. So there's two takeaways from this article. So uh, this article talks about a parking altercation, as I said, where um, a friendly man on the street Uh, warned a Tesla driver that he is parking illegally and will likely to get towed. Uh, The Tesla driver promptly told him to go fuck himself, the guy who was warning him. So the first takeaway from this article is that Tesla drivers and the kind of, I would say, the the notion that they are kind of uppity pricks it's international it's not just in the us they're, they're uppity pricks in, in north america as well and i say that in jest i haven't know a ton of people with teslas that are not pricks at all but we definitely i think tesla drivers tend to have a little bit of that reputation so that reputation proceeds to our neighbors to the north our our listenership just dropped to like Eighty nine. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I tried to yeah. put the caveat in there. So if you are right. a Tesla driver, I'm not saying you're a prick, but there is like, it exists. But you probably are. Um, no, not necessarily. Cody Townsend, ladies and gentlemen, direct your complaints <laughs> to him and not me. I have said nothing bad about Tesla just, drivers. I'm saying that reputation exists. I'm not saying I agree <laughs> with it per se. It's just out there. So, And it's, it's out, there. out there to the north to our neighbors up there as well. So um, just wanted to kind of put that out there. And then the great, <laughs> this is just the line that absolutely killed me because this guy put up a social po- uh, social media post, the guy who warned this Tesla driver. And the, the first post is uh, of... A picture of the Tesla parked illegally. And the second picture is of him eating an ice cream cone, watching the Tesla driver get towed. And he says, here's a photo of me eating ice cream cone while I watch it being towed. And I just thought that was like the most Canadian thing ever because it did not match the intensity or anger that the Tesla driver showed to him. It was just this like quiet laugh. I'm going to eat an ice cream cone and watch this man get towed. So I thought it really embodied Canada as a whole and Tesla drivers. There's also a bit of a like, don't mess with Canadians. Yeah. Like,
0: they will exercise vengeance in a, in a pretty nice and polite way, but vengeance nevertheless. Yeah. It was, and so it was polite vengeance. Yeah, yeah, polite vengeance coming out of Canada. That ice cream cone looks really good, too.
1: Yeah, it's got, like, caramel in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. it's
0: delicious. It really does. So. Um, wow. I feel like we just offended everyone in this segment. You did. I don't. I don't think I offended anybody. You
1: are out here on an island... By yourself, just offending everyone. <laughs> Talking shit um, about Tesla drivers, even though like Jeremy Jones drives a Tesla, Jim Morrison drives a Tesla. I know like 10 people. So we know a lot of good people. Good people. Um, so, I mean, of all things, they're good cars. And then,
0: Do you think Canadians are going to be upset or will they like the fact that we call them like uh, politely vengeful?
1: Oh, I'd probably, be, I think, happy with that. Like you know, okay. they're showing that they have backbone, but they're going to do it in the politest way possible. They're not going to, they we're not going to trample over Canadians, but they they can get their vengeance, but while being nice. So I think they'll be happy with that stereotype. Okay. You're Canadian. Let us
0: know how you feel about our our stereotype being politely vengeful. It's kind of badass. I kind of dig it. It's I like totally gentle like the gentleman assassin.
1: Totally. That's why yeah. I that's why I picked this article. I saw that I was like, "This is great."
0: <laughs> I sometimes don't know how you get all this stuff on your radar. To be honest with you, it's pretty impressive to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I I should either be way less impressed with you because it's like, where does this dude get this time to, to track all this down? But mostly, I'm impressed.
1: Yeah, yeah pay attention.
0: <laughs> pay better attention. All right. Well, hey, for for Mountain Town advice this go round. We're actually going to just do a little bit of a follow up. We had a pretty lengthy conversation in our last reviewing the news talking about car camping, basically at ski areas, and how that is becoming in many places kind of um, disallowed. And you'll kind of find some people aggressively enforcing like no car camping. Um, And we had a number of people write in. I kind of want to still do a bit more of a follow up on this, but. I want to give a shout out here to somebody who wrote in and just telling us a bit about the situation in Summit County, Colorado, that there has been an effort to formalize allowing people to sleep in their cars in designated safe spaces. While this isn't the altruism of ski bum culture, it does seem to be at least a tacit recognition of the issues of housing in our region. Are we allowed to put the link? Can we link in the show notes to this to to this message we received. Okay, we'll, we'll put a link in on this, but um, I thought I, I appreciated this coming in um, and uh, we'll put a link there to get the rest of you thinking about some of these things and hopefully some people, you know, maybe give some ideas uh, to some folks who have some say and sway in given ski locations. Also had some folks giving a shout out to Schweitzer Ski Area. Um, where there seems to be a good culture for this. And then we had Logan writing in who wanted to, we'll just kind of do this briefly, give a shout out to places like Telluride, Colorado and Big Sky, Montana. So there are some signs of hope out there that we're seeing.
1: Yeah, and I think it goes back and kind of the second email talks about it a little bit, like getting involved with your local local town councils your communities and advocating for this will be a i think a big big help because um if we want to have more designated spaces for car camping then it's going to be really at the discretion of the people running the law enforcement agencies. So um, if you want to see this, I think getting involved with the town councils, city councils, all that is going to be the way moving forward. Um, I would hope to see more because, yeah, we talk about the housing crisis, all these areas, being able to be a ski bum, the things that we want to continue to happen. So um, being able to sleep in your car and go skiing doesn't get better than that. Keeping it moving, in part because you have a child to pick up soon. Oh yes, yes, totally. Thanks for reminding
0: me. Mm, I'm like your nanny, kind of. I don't know. Nannies do more than issue reminders, so I guess I'm not. But I'm this way. Your wife won't be mad at you. Yeah, there you go. So you're welcome. Yeah, Yeah. and your son won't be abandoned. So there's that
1: too. (laughs) Well, I got. I got to say, I did my first. Elise and I did our first time ever this weekend without Indy. First time together, we left him, and it wasn't one of us watching him for for an overnight first time in two years. So what did you, what did you think of this? Um, well, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you get to some actual alone time with your wife. Like it's great because it's usually like, if we're getting alone time away from your your kid it's then you're not with your your partner so um to actually be able to do that and go out to dinner and hang out and have a conversation that is unbroken by having to pay attention to your two-year-old it was it was really enjoyable but at the same time yeah i kept catching myself being like oh where's indy like oh my god <laughs> like uh, yeah you kind of have this like feeling in the back of your head like oh god forgetting my child somewhere because he's just not around us and we're together but there's not this third thing with us what's going on so um that was a nice weekend away but um yeah i think you get so addicted to being with your kid that it's also nice to be back i i'm glad you're you're not left with the conclusion like man
0: we could have just not had a kid that would have been way better no, definitely That would not. have been a
1: tough admission on reviewing the news. Yeah, totally. It just announced to a hundred people that it was like, you know what, people? I wish I didn't have a kid. That would be that'd be rough. Yeah. yeah no. Fortunately
0: though, it's only eighty nine now because all the Tesla owners that you know have already turned off turned off the podcast. Perfect. Have you been reading or
1: watching anything? Yes, a few things. Well, one, actually, I will say, so because we were on a flight together, uh, Elise got to binge watch um, something because usually when you're on a flight with a kid, you cannot watch anything. you were watching your your child the entire time. And uh, first things I will say is uh, I went through the rankings on these behind the sports shows and she got to watch the Tour de France one and she was completely in alignment. The Tour de France one is the best one out of them all. She was just blown away by it. And she knows never watched bike racing or whatever. So um, I will say that the our rankings that I put out, at least in my household, continue to uh, hold up. i would be interesting to hear other, other people's. Um, but I also actually wanted to talk about reality TV in general because do you watch reality TV at all? No. So there's two shows I want to talk about that I've realized I've never talked about here, but are two reality TV shows I absolutely love. And I was watching one of them on the plane, and it's such a good show, is Alone. Have you watched that show? I don't know what this is. You don't know what it is? Oh, my God, it's so good. So um, the concept is they put 10 people out in the wild. They drop them off kind of in a general area. So one of the areas in the past few years was being in Yellowknife on Great Slave Lake. And they spread them out like 30 miles away from each other. And then these people... The, the goal is stay out there by yourself for as long as possible. So whoever's the last person's out there and able to survive on their own, they win $500,000. And it is a really fascinating show because it shows how hard surviving in these places by yourself is. Um They put them in really challenging environments and at challenging times of the year. They usually put them, it's lately been in the Arctic, so in the Great Slave Lake, and they put them in late September and then try to hold on for three months until it's December and it's minus 40 and there's no animals anymore, but showing how to how hard it is to hunt and harvest food in these areas to build shelters on your own the expenditure of energy you have in just trying to go hunt and catch your own food like to me what it shows is surviving on your own in the arctic is impossible because pretty much every single one of these people have lost 30 percent of their body weight and are slowly dying um and you like a lot of the times the people don't want to pull out but they do medical checks on these people because they have doctors will fly in, um, and a heli boat in and check on them and be like, "You've lost forty percent of your body weight. You're showing horrible signs. We are actively going to pull you out because you're gonna die." Um, it's a really fascinating show. Like it's kind of a lot of the reality TV, the Bear Grylls, the Survivor Man, all those kind of things. They felt like it was survival, but it was more scripted and there's people around them. And this is self-shot contest. And it's, it's fascinating. You, you learn a lot about how hard survival is. So great show. First of all, where's it airing? So, uh, it's, I, I want to say it's on the history channel, but it's, um, Netflix is buying this the seasons like a year after they've been out. So I've been watching them on Netflix. How do you feel about the fact that Against a participant's
0: decision, doctors can say, you're done. We're pulling you out. I sort of, I kind of want the version where it's like, yo, I need that 500K. (laughs) I don't want to go on living without the 500K. Like that would be the, we should start this. It's like alone, the real version, not alone, (laughs) colon, no one will save you. I mean, because you said many of the participants are like, it's not that they're quitting. It's
1: that doctors are like, we're not going to let you continue. Yeah. But if you watch the show and you see the state that these people are in, you're like, you, yeah, you're going to die and it might take another week or it might take another month, but you are quickly on a path to die. And, um, you know, they're shivering uncontrollably. They're like, not being able to digest food anymore and they're vomiting because they just, their, their stomachs are revolting so much. Like they're really like poisoning their bodies. And they talk about if you read some of the or read or watch some of the bonus content that comes with it, like they've talked about how, when these people come out, it takes 60 to 90 days to get them normal again, because you're not like when you're in those starvation modes, like you can't just power a bunch of food like you actually might die from eating way too much food. So it's like, uh, it, I don't know. It's pretty crazy. I I don't know. You're some sort of fucking masochist. You want to watch people die on TV like <laughs> gladiator style. Well, I mean, our, let's, our, what are we doing
0: here? Like, I mean. The people can still voluntarily quit or raise their hand and be like, "Assist me out of here." I don't know. I, no. There's
1: another version of this show. It's a dark show. It's probably all cross country skiers. <laughs> yeah, they will definitely win. So, and it, it's crazy and alone. There's a lot of wilderness experts and survival teachers and whatnot. Those are the people that are, they're pulling. Oh yeah, these people are the good. real deal. People. Oh, they're good. Okay. Like like, I would have like I think about like oh I camp in the wild i would have no business i would last like four days and be out of there because like these are like truly trained experts which is again i want to go back to top chef because top chef i think is one of the greatest shows and it's because they're these like some of the best of the best competing against each other in a kind of pretty authentic way like top chef has made a lot of careers for a lot of amazing chefs and uh i only brought it up because it's been 20 years of top chef um it's i think one of the best reality tv shows that has ever happened the fact that it's going on for 20 years is a testament to that and i think it's when it comes into this reality tv which seems like we lump it all in with like horrible content like real housewives of orange county and stuff like that um there is good reality tv and alone and top chef those are my my two jams
0: okay so man i'm a total disappointment i i'd like to give you a hard time but here's where i confess that i'm a total disappointment i still have not gone through better call saul so what do you you don't you should not even show up next time we have a reviewing the news like i have i have I've, i've totally failed you on the reality tv side if if you were going to say okay you have to watch one reality tv thing it sounds like you would
1: you would include the tour de france show as reality tv i get i kind of put it that no they put those are in different categories cuz those are like docu series they're like documentaries of things that happened reality tv seems to be like more you, you get thrown into situation and then we're going to docu like document that as opposed to like the docu-series that are out there the one good side of it is they can kind of weave the storylines in which ways they want to whereas in reality tv the producers really don't know what's going to happen until it goes out there the docu-series is like like the Tour de France, they already know what happened and they captured everything. And now let's kind of make the stories uh, work in a of viewing pleasure of the audience. So of
0: all reality TV shows of all time, if you could get me to watch one of them, is it Alone? Is it first season of Top Chef?
1: Is it mm. some other thing? Uh, that's a tough one. I, uh, yeah, I can't really... I mean, reality TV in general, though, I would still say it most scripted television shows I would put far above any sort of reality TV. Like, like I tend to watch at least and I watch Top Chef and it feels like it's kind of like a, I don't know, a break in a certain way. It's a it's bite sized content. It's something that's like your mind doesn't have to think too much about. There's not these deeper storylines and whatnot. So like if it came down to it, I probably would say like, no, like. Don't ever watch reality TV. But if you need something to take a break from, like Top Chef to me, I think, has actually been one of the more powerful shows for an industry and a culture. Um, There's a lot of like really great articles talking about how Top Chef has really shaped cooking in North America over the last uh, uh, 20 years. Um, How in the beginning of the series, uh, they were very much judging upon Traditional cooking techniques, French cooking techniques, the very kind of um, cordon bleu style of cooking, and how what's really evolved with this is uh, the ethnic cuisines, the blending of cultural cuisines, the elevation of cuisines you've never even heard about, West African cuisines and being having West African chefs on the show who are amazing chefs and they go really far because they show how Good they are at the technical side but that they're cooking with uh flavors and techniques of west africa where they are originally from or their family is originally from and i think top chef as a whole like there's not any one season uh that i would tell you to watch it's kind of the embodiment of what has happened within the culture of cooking and restaurants because of top chef
0: gotcha that makes sense anything else
1: no, that's it. That's what. What have you been reading, watching?
0: People might notice a surprising lack of NFL talk on reviewing the news, and that is directly related to the fact that, as a Chicago Bears fan, I'm I'm just in an existential crisis right now. It's real bad and real dark, and um, I know you have very kindly, you know, said like invited me to be a like to the 49ers bandwagon. And I I don't know what's wrong, but I struggle to like leave the very toxic relationship that I'm in with the Chicago Bears. But it's just real, real bleak over here right now. So for all the people who don't like our NFL talk, this is probably a great thing for them. By the way, congratulations
1: on your amazing season. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> our four no 49ers with the last pick in the draft and just the the what is going down is what was regarded as like the worst trade is now one of the best trades being that we got the best player in the nfl being christian mccaffrey like it's bananas yeah no i haven't brought it up because i just don't want to gloat because I, I it's really kind of you uh, but i would say our bears fans the cross-country skiers of the nfl world no, because
0: cross-country skiers are really fit, and <laughs> I'm not sure that as a group we can claim that as a group of Bears fans, but we, we apparently are real into suffering. We don't ever need the, the, the joy of the downhill. It's just all downhill, but the bad kind of downhill, and it's, it's, really, it's really sad and upsetting. So there's that. That ends, that ends NFL Talk Corner. Uh, for this episode the the book i'm now slowly working my way through is uh this book by peter atia called outlive um and it's been interesting uh it's a good sort of i think state of the current research on longevity studies and it doesn't get weird it's not like go sleep in a you know Cry, go get cryogenically frozen every night for one hour or something like that. But I think it's good stuff to kind of keep in mind. And Atiyah is a sharp guy who I think, you know, you can, you can sort of go through and decide for yourself what sort of adjustments you might want to make in your life. So while I do not find this as kind of mind melting as the book I mentioned last time, James Nestor's Breath, um, it's been good to kind of slowly make my way through it um but i i'm ready to read some other stuff we we got done doing our big winter buyers guide and and been kind of catching up on things since then so need to bump up the reading time i will say i'm really looking forward to receiving mountain gazette issue number 200 i feel like right now that's going to be just the thing to kind of hit kind of hit you know hit right now for what i'm looking for and the kind of stuff i'd like to read so that's good. Um, otherwise, just watching the Bears and getting depressed every Sunday and, and uh, I guess reading Peter Atiyah's outlive to figure out how to manage that Bears-induced
1: depression, kind of what I'm up to. Yeah, I guess. Uh, do you want to live long enough to watch the Bears win a Super Bowl again. Is that what it is?
0: <laughs> it's not gonna happen. I don't I don't we I literally was on that text thread with several of my friends from uh eighth grade uh in Chicago and one friend was like well you know every loss is just one day closer to the next Super Bowl win and the rest of us are just like it's not
1: happening. Um we're we're in a dark spot right now so yeah, instead as Niners fans, we have a you know a second year quarterback who's the last pick in the draft, and he's currently twelve and zero. He has not lost a game in the regular season. He's not lost a game that he finished ever in the NFL. Like it's bananas, and unfortunately, your guy, old Fields, he's uh it's a bit rough with him right now. Sorry, I liked him. I really did like him, but. What do you mean? You liked him in college? I've gotten your texts about Justin Fields, just as a quarterback, not as a person. Yeah, yeah, I liked him in high school. Like <laughs> I watched, I watched Elite Eleven that <laughs> year with that him and Trevor Lawrence were in there, and I really liked him. And I watched him in college, and I really liked him, but he's not working out for the NFL. So I, I, I can kind of you know, in those texts, I, I'll say him out loud here is like after now a couple years is like he doesn't have it. I'm sorry he doesn't have it
0: caleb williams we got a shot we got a shot at caleb williams that's exciting but then it's also like i can't believe we're going to ruin the career of another fine young man <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so it's real it's real dark anyways to end on a to end on a brighter note hey it snowed last night here in crested butte we have snow covered mountains we are starting ski film season We've got the latest Matchstick production film premiere in Crested Butte. That's, what, Saturday the 7th. I know Solomon's got a film tour going. Like, a lot of folks are off showing ski films, and
1: that's not depressing. No. Yeah, ski film season. There's snow in the peaks. It's feeling cold. It's, it's, it's coming around here soon. So soon we'll be talking about actual ski news, which is great.
0: Yeah. And we've got, this will come out Wednesday. We're recording Tuesday, October 3rd. This comes out the next day, and there will be a
1: fresh episode of The 50. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we got four episodes this year, two of which are film length. um, Split is coming out, what it would be today. And I think, honestly, it's one of my favorite episodes we've made. Um, And then beyond that, then we have the movie The Polar Star, which was the episode about not the, the, the line the polar star in Baffin Island but a movie that's much more than that and uh we got nominated for best film at the High Fives Festival which I was like really stoked on especially because I actually originally thought Split was the better movie of the two um so that that's cool um it means we have two really good film length episodes coming out this year which I'm stoked about
0: well i look forward to watching that version of reality tv the fifties, about as close as I get, really. Mm-hmm. So, no, yeah. yeah, that should have been my answer. If you want to watch yeah, right. reality TV, bad, just watch. Bad the 50. marketing job. Totally. Bad marketing job by you.
1: You're like, I can't think of anything. Yeah, there's nothing good. <laughs> well, there's nothing good out there. I can't think of any good like docu series or anything. <laughs> Hey, man, as
0: always, thank you for the good conversation. And um, we're going to have you go get indie so yep. you don't get in trouble. Yep. And, uh, but yeah, everybody, we can all check out Split. Look forward to the next time around. Sounds good. Good to always talk. Have a good one. Bye. All right, man. Take care. Well, that's it for this edition of The Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody, as always, for the conversation. Don't forget to check out the film Split and see if you agree with Cody that it's one of the best episodes of the 50. Now, I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode and for the quick turnaround. Thank you, Taylor. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening. And... If some of you also happen to be fans of our Gear 30 podcast, remember, we're trying to get to 750 ratings so that I get on a snowboard this year because that seems like a wonderful slash terrible idea. But the fact is, I just want to do it. So can y'all please make this happen? Don't tell Cody, but we have a whole lot more than 102 listeners on this And so let me see, if like 0.1% of you left a rating of gear 30 who haven't already left a rating, we would hit 750 reviews in like three seconds. So do us a favor. It's time for me to go down the mountain sideways. Let's make it happen, folks. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. And we will talk to you again real soon.